1: Guys, Trump's tweet this morning says, and I'm not making this up, low ratings, fake news, MSDNC, in parentheses, Comcast, Uh, and at, (laughs) at CNN are doing everything possible to make the coronavirus, with a capital C and an A, look as bad as possible, including panicking markets, if possible. Likewise, their incompetent do-nothing Democrat comrades are all talk, no action, USA in great shape.
0: Okay, so can we quarantine the president when he gets back from India? (laughs) Like, doesn't he need to go into two weeks of isolation with no phone, maybe? Uh, Maybe No Twitter. No Twitter. They've tried
2: to quarantine his Twitter. That didn't work. I just like coronavirus. Carona. Spelled with an A. Why would
3: we worry about attention to detail or... Clear communication from the president.
2: It's just the government during a pandemic, which is totally made up.
0: Everything's fine. Everything's great. Great.
1: All is great in America. All is well. Doing fine. We're
0: in great shape. Stock market's in great shape. Feeling good. <coughs> Get him out of here. Yeah, Get him into quarantine. That man. <laughs>
2: Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Just Quarantine Everything edition. I'm Shane Harris. I would not mind being quarantined under the right circumstances.
0: If I could be quarantined with the three of you, that could be f- that could a could be fun fun. Way to pass the time. It'd be
2: like a podcast that lasted for two weeks. I
0: will say the
3: people who've been quarantined on the cruise ship, like that, is my personal version of hell. Yes, <laughs> so bad. Imagine so this, this
1: is the game that we're playing at the end of the show. You all have the length of the show to think about this. Okay. If you were quarantined on a cruise ship, oh, God. No. Susan's personal vision of hell, and the cruise ship were designed by Jean-Paul Sartre, so it was like <laughs> hell is other people, who would be your nightmare to be quarantined with oh. for all eternity? You all get one person, and that cruise ship, that hypothetical cruise ship— Is my object lesson. (laughs) Oh, wow.
2: You really want us to be honest about that? Yeah. Like, who
1: are, who is the
2: person? Can we make a rule that it's not like someone we know? Yeah, no, it's public purse. No, it's okay. who
3: in
0: this room? Because how many people?
2: Because <laughs> I got a feeling in-laws might be on the list. Yeah, more than like no, no, Like that kid be...
0: from seventh grade. It's got to be people who okay, the a
2: reasonable
1: person. listener would
2: probably okay. have heard of. Okay, right. okay, okay, okay. We'll think about that Deal. for the end of the show. So stay tuned for that. And you should also think about who would be on your list. It'll be a fun little game we play along at home. Uh, I am here in the new Jungle Studio. It is not a quarantine site. With my good friends Tomorrow and witness Ben Woodis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey. No one experiencing any flu or cold like symptoms?
0: I actually do have a little bit of a cold. <laughs> do you have so a, little a little bit of it's a rasp? A little bit of a congestion. We're going to have like uh, temperature checking radar guns yeah. pointed at everybody on the streets of our cities pretty soon. You know,
2: to see if they have coronavirus.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm not familiar with that one. You know? If you guys haven't listened to it, listening on the Lawfare podcast to Sophia Yan talking about getting her temperature checked every time she leaves her building, it is uh, worth your time. Interesting. All right. Well, on the podcast this week, coronavirus is
2: spreading and the administration's message has been a jumble. Intelligence reports suggest that Russia has developed a preference for Trump in the election and is trying to help Bernie Sanders. And world leaders call for action to halt a humanitarian crisis in Syria. So let's talk about the coronavirus messaging, because I think by now everyone has been following along with the actual spread of the virus. Although we we should say that the number of cases in the number of different countries appears to have surged quite a bit. And there's actually some thinking that because, if I have this right, some of the testing kits that have been used in the United States had a faulty component to them. That that once the test kits get out to state laboratories, there may be actually more cases than we knew in the United States. But but Tammy, maybe let's start with you on this. It, the, the CDC put out a statement yesterday in a top official there basically saying everyone should be prepared for this to impact daily life, right? Which seemed pretty darn serious. Uh, this has immediately been met with kind of the skepticism and, and total pushback from the White House on its messaging as well. We've seen the president before contradict. His own officials on everything from intelligence assessments to, you know, security-related matters overseas. This or seems... the
0: trajectory of a hurricane, or the trajectory say. of
2: a hurricane. The right. Coronavirus is headed straight for Alabama. <laughs> right. Exactly. And uh, we're waiting for the Sharpie map to come out. This seems. I mean, we, we've said this so many times, but this really does seem qualitatively different, and that this is the first time we've ever seen this kind of response from the White House during a genuine public health emergency.
0: Yes. And so it's interesting that this is an administration and a president who have mobilized supporters around fear that, you know, the 2016 election and at several points since then, fear of immigrants, fear of, you know, economic crashes, fear of Democrats, fear of Muslims. And now people are afraid and worried about this virus They don't actually know how afraid they should be, uh, but there's enough news coverage of it that it is making people anxious. And normally the role of the federal government in such an instance is to be calm, fact-based, make sure that information gets disseminated out to local communities so that everybody knows what to look for, how to prepare, how to respond, and it sort of tamps that fear down. Instead, you have incredibly confused messaging, partly because the president himself seems a little bit freaked out by this. And I think that there are a couple of things going on here. One is that the president seems to think that the spreading of this virus beyond China is a conspiracy designed to attack his reelection prospects by sending the Dow into a downward spiral over the last couple of days. And it's a simple fact that when an economy like the Chinese economy that is so integrated with our own and with global trade, you know, is um, hit with a virus that shuts down production and keeps people at home, that's going to have global impacts. So that's the the first fear that Trump seems to be manifesting. But then the other thing is that he himself has so devalued scientific expertise, policy expertise, um, the role of neutral experts in the federal government. He has spent the first three years of his presidency hollowing out those capacities, devaluing them and denigrating them. And now at a moment when he could actually use these guys, it would be helpful. He can't effectively mobilize them because these institutions have been hollowed out. So it's a manifestation of what as a practical matter has happened to government effectiveness while Trump has been president.
3: Yeah, look, I like to think of myself as someone who doesn't panic, um, and also somebody who's pretty well versed in the meaning of government communications, right? I've seen what raw threat intelligence looks like as it goes through the process of what gets communicated to the public. And um, and so whenever I see a statement from the government, I, I feel like, okay, I'm in a pretty good position to understand, like, should I be really, really scared right now? Or should I? is everything pretty much under control? And Yesterday, um, after watching the CDC briefing um, and seeing the president's tweets on this, I'm, well, I'm a rational actor who, you know, doesn't want to panic about things. I bought a set of N95-rated masks in a toddler size because they're really, really rare. I paid exorbitant, offensive, should-be-illegal surge pricing for it because even though, like, as a person, I understand the risks are relatively minimal, whenever you have to think for a minute as a parent whose kid might need something that's relatively rare – Whenever a CDC official is telling you, well, we might need to prepare for the worst case scenario here for things to be to start impacting ordinary life, you aren't acting from a completely rational place. You really need the government to be communicating specifics to you. And what we saw yesterday and what I saw yesterday taking off my like security expert hat and putting on just an ordinary parent, ordinary citizen hat – was chaos, nobody in charge, nobody who understands what's happening, and fundamentally a situation in which it actually doesn't matter what information comes out at this point. We don't know if we can actually rely on it. And so I think one of the things that is incredibly disturbing is the suggestion that there might be incentives, both in the White House and now being communicated to places like the CDC, to minimize the risks, to minimize the public health risks, to minimize sort of that basic communication to citizens of, here is the steps you should be taking. Don't freak out. It's no, there's, there's nothing to be alarmed about, but you need to be washing your hands. You shouldn't be att- going to the office if you aren't feeling well. Just kind of that basic stuff. If that's being minimized because the president is concerned not with public health, not with the good of the country, but his own re-election prospects as tied to the stock market, that's a really, really scary situation to be in, in part because if we look at the countries where this is having its worst impact – places like China and places like Iran, places where faith and confidence in government communications tends to be relatively low. I actually think we're in a really, really scary moment. I hope it it turns out to be yet another of sort of these near misses that we've seen again and again in the Trump presidency. But but I think it's a pretty disturbing reality that we're faced with.
2: Ben, it also strikes me, and I want to hear your thoughts, that this could be a moment where you know a conventional politician might actually try and use this to his advantage and say the government's got this under control we here at the white house are being fully briefed we're going to turn over to the cdc now they're going to give you some tips you know instead you have the president insisting it's not true worried about the stock market. You had Ken Cushinelli at the Homeland Security Department the other day, you know, tweeting about how he couldn't log on to a live map of the virus. From at Johns
3: Hopkins.
2: Hopkins. And saying, is anyone else having this problem? Which sounded like the equivalent of somebody like, you know, bitching about their bags being lost on an airline. It was just so unusual to see that kind of behavior from the people that we ordinarily turn to and say, well, you're supposed to be the ones who have the answers. This is
1: literally your job. Yeah. So a couple things. First of all, this was entirely foreseeable. And I know that it was entirely foreseeable because it was in fact foreseen. When the administration changed hands, Obama's White House counterterrorism and Homeland Security director, Lisa Monaco, uh, wrote a piece in Lawfare in which she said, by the way, this is the big thing that my position uh, was the big surprise to me how much of this position turned out to be about pandemic disease. She was referring to the Ebola incidents. And that public uh, set of statements, in fact, as she confirmed on the Lawfare podcast the other day, reflected internal guidance and advice that she gave to her successor, Tom Bossert, who, of course, has since been fired, And so, you know, that after SARS and Ebola, the idea that something of this variety was going to happen was, you know, as the CDC would put it, not a matter of if but when, right? I mean, some respiratory infection that is highly transmissible and has some elevated lethality. Uh, It's just we knew this was going to happen. It's happened before. And by the way, there are reasons why these things start in China that have to do with, you know, the density of population there combined with the mobility associated with the Chinese New Year. That is also how SARS got started. And so, like, I actually think this is an area unlike, say, Hurricane Harvey, where you can really say... It is the disorganization of the Trump administration and the Trump White House that has actually materially contributed to bad response. And this was a known thing that this was going to happen. They have largely gotten rid of the positions designed at the senior levels to manage stuff like this. And we are going to pay a price for that because there is nobody to whisper in the president's ear here's everything we can do here's what we are doing here are the things we need additional authority to do so i sympathize with the president you go off to india you think the thing is under control and it turns out not to be under control and the stock market tanks and it's all not objectively not good for your reelection prospects but uh it's entirely his fault and this is actually an area where you know we have been saying for a long time that Trump has been very lucky that the degree of chaos of his management has not coincided with a crisis that really requires good management. Well, eventually your luck runs out, and this is the crisis that requires good senior level management, good, clear thinking. It requires resistance to conspiracy theories. It requires, as Susan rightly says, exactly the sort of measured, serious public communications that instill confidence. And these are all of the things that they're bad at.
0: I think, in addition, it requires a whole-of-government approach. If you really want to mitigate the effects, you can't just do what they seem to have done in this case, which is sort of Pointed to the CDC and said, You guys, fix this, (laughs) right? We've talked before about how the Trump administration has struggled to figure out how to wield the levers of power but a pandemic is precisely the kind of crisis that requires a lot of different parts of the government to work together to mitigate the effects contain the risk and you know and deal with the consequences the CDC can't do it alone if you're the president and you're concerned about the impact of a pandemic on the stock market, there are actually a lot of things that the federal government can do to mitigate economic effects of a pandemic that that will impact travel, that will impact a global supply chain, and things like that. But you can only do that if you have a whole-of-government approach with somebody at the White House who has coordinating authority across agencies and who has relationships with the experts in those agencies and trusts them to bring their expertise to the table, you know, as part of a comprehensive plan. And that's the other thing that this administration and this White House have utterly degraded is that willingness to treat the experts in government as partners in the exercise of governance. And, in you know, it's ironic that in this particular case, that would also help It wouldn't just help with the public health crisis, it would also help Trump with what he seems to be most worried about, which is the political impact for him.
3: Right. And and concerned about the political impact for for him and also appears to be uh, making politically motivated judgments in how he responds. For example, when the U.S. government had a plan to send infected cruise ship passengers, Americans, to a military base in Alabama, the governor of Alabama called him to complain and apparently Trump backed off. And so the governor of Alabama is tweeting thanks to President Trump for ensuring that Alabamans are kept safe you know leading to the question you know both to the governor and the president well where should they go and and what states are going to bear the brunt of this potentially and are we going to have equitable distribution of resources and and how are politics going to influence that and that is not a question we have had to ask about any prior american president
2: and just a final thought too on the media's role in this and the press's role in this the, the president's reaction has been read in that tweet Is illustrative of how he tends to, I think, view a lot of the press, which is that our raison d'etre is to be somehow in opposition to him and to make him look bad. The role of a press, actually, in a moment of public crisis, a public health crisis, uh, there's a long tradition and a playbook for this. We are very much a conduit for people about verifiable, useful information. So when we are out there reporting about this, this has very little to do. With you know, as it never it never does have anything to do with journalists feeling gleeful that the news is bad for the president. That's his misconception. But there is really a role for the press in this. Public health officials anywhere will tell you that. And I think that when you have a president and his White House officials saying that the press is trying to mislead people out of a political agenda, that is just further eroding our credibility in the eyes of some people as a useful Uh, dependable, credible source of information about how they should protect themselves and their family. So there's an extra real danger uh, to this as well, I think. Um, All right. Let's move on to our next topic. I'm not even sure I have a good segue for this.
3: This I just is, like to this viral is 2016 something. flashbacks,
2: baby. Yeah, viral. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's some viral mm-hmm. stuff maybe going on here?
3: The readers, the listeners, can do some work. Here. You up. can put fill it together.
2: Make a transition. Just, put it in your mind. Just picture yourself back in 2016. I don't know. It was like July. Was it July? We found yeah, out about the Russians breaking into July. the DNC, and it's like you know, here we are again, four years later. And the Russians are back, you guys. Who would have, they who never could have left. Possibly guessed. Who could have guessed that the Russians would be here and they <laughs> in our elections again? <laughs> <laughs> Bob Mueller. Literally every currently serving intelligence uh, and, and national security. Yeah, it's like beneficial.
1: they're gonna be back. Right. Is like a cliche.
2: It's a cliche. It's a cliche at this point. So they're back. Uh we broke a story over at the post. Last week, about a uh, elections official uh, at the ODNI, Shelby Pearson, who I think the national the elections threat executive, I believe is her title, uh, who gave testimony to the House Intelligence Committee, and in the course of this, which was a scheduled briefing, we should emphasize with her and a number of other national security officials about threats to the 2020 election and what the government is doing to defend against that and to secure the election, uh, got into a dialogue with members in which she said that on a number of occasions, as we reported, uh, that the Russians had, quote, developed a preference for President Trump. It became immediately not clear whether she was saying they were once again conducting active measures to try and help the president get elected. Uh, but there was a a lot of frustration over this at the White House. It ultimately led to President Trump dismissing Joe Maguire as the acting director of national intelligence and replacing him with Rick Grinnell. But then comes news that the government has also briefed the Sanders campaign, uh, that the Russians are trying to help them as well. It's not entirely clear what assistance that form has taken. Senator Sanders learned about this a month ago. He said, for whatever reason, chose not to disclose it. But Ben, you know, sort of here we are again. And what strikes me is that (laughs) while the administration and the the intelligence community's statement on this has been consistent for years— that the Russians are going to try and intervene in 2020. The president's statement also seems very consistent, which is that he is downplaying this. He's insisting that the Russians couldn't possibly be trying to help him. But interestingly, he is seems to be embracing uh, the analysis by his own
1: intelligence community that they are trying to help Bernie Sanders. Right. Well... All of that seems to me entirely consistent with his prior behavior, which is, you know, they're not intervening on my behalf. The Ukrainians are intervening on your behalf, right, is the line about 2016. And the line about 2018 is it's all fake news about me, but it's God's truth about Bernie Sanders, right? And, of course, the reality, I think, is that the intervention on behalf of Bernie Sanders, assuming it's for real – is actually an intervention on behalf of Donald Trump in the sense that Donald Trump wants to run against Bernie Sanders because he perceives, I think probably correctly, that Bernie Sanders is, is not the strongest general election candidate against him. And so it is his preference to run against Sanders and just as in 2016 the Russians did some pro-Sanders activity against Hillary Clinton because they hated Hillary Clinton and also because they were trying to create chaos and a Trump-Sanders race was a chaotic one that would give Trump a significantly better chance of winning, I think there's every reason to expect that they've done the same thing or they are thinking about doing the same thing or in doing the same thing here. This is the
2: movie they wanted.
1: Exactly. Um, Now, I do think, to Bernie Sanders' credit, he has handled it well. That is, he has, unlike Trump, not either tried to deny the premise or tried to wink and say, keep it up, guys, much less to have a press conference and say, keep it up, guys, the sort of Russia or you're are you listening press conference. He's actually said this is totally unacceptable. Stay out of our elections. And, you know, if you get involved, uh, there will be, you know, repercussions when I'm president. And so I actually thought his answer to the question at the debate uh, last night was quite respectable. And I'm not sure uh, there are a lot of reasons not to in my view admire bernie sanders including his foreign policy views but i don't i can't fault any aspect of his reaction to this obviously i don't know what the nature of the intervention on his behalf might be but i and i don't know whether he knows more than he has said as a result of that briefing but i'm not sure there's anything he should be doing that he isn't doing
0: I, so i've been struck by <sighs> The way in which this story is getting covered and even the way that the two of you were just talking about it seems to me to be sort of skipping past what's really going on here. Why is it that the Russians are doing this, regardless of what their specific candidate preference in what they're doing may or may not be? And, you know, there was another briefing last week, a a public briefing by uh, David Porter from the FBI's Foreign Influence Task Force. And he emphasized that what, you know, what Russia wants, why is it doing this? It's doing this because it wants to tear us apart. It wants us to tear ourselves apart with this disinformation. And I think that's, you know, that's what's missing from the reporting about, oh, do they like Bernie? Do they like, you know, Trump? They want to stoke dissension. They want to undermine Americans' faith in our political process, in our electoral process. They want the outcome of the election, no matter what it is, to have a shadow of illegitimacy hanging over it amongst some chunks of the U.S. population. That's the underlying goal here. And I think that's what we need to be focusing on as we think and talk about this. I wish it's what the media would focus on more rather than are they supporting Bernie? Um, Or why didn't Bernie say something about this before? And I think it's also, you know, as we talk about how to combat disinformation, we have to get away from the narrow specific tactics of the disinformation and focus on the underlying objective. We need an election with a legitimate outcome. And what's troubling to me about the president's response to this is you know, not just using it in a self-serving way because he'd love to run against Bernie. But what's troubling about the president's response is that he wants to undermine Americans' faith in the electoral process. He's constantly casting doubt on the legitimacy of our elections. He's constantly questioning whether outcomes that aren't in accordance with his preference are legitimate outcomes. And so in a fundamental way, he is working alongside and on behalf of the same objectives as the Russians. And that's what we should be talking about. Yes, I think one really interesting question
3: is, what was the nature of the briefing to the Sanders um, campaign? Not uh, not sort of just based on what were they told about what, what was happening, but what does it show us that the FBI and the government has learned about combating election interference? So one of the findings of the Mueller report was that, um, at least as it was related to sort of the social media troll bot uh, influence operation, um, there was unwitting uh, uh, support from the Trump campaign. and. So So I think there's the one interesting question is, you know, is one of the strategy, one strategy of the government this time around to inform, to proactively inform campaigns in advance. Okay, this is what we see going on. It's so that campaigns can um, can better conduct themselves. Um, uh, You know, I I think it's a serious question, sort of how uh, what are our expectations about how a campaign and candidate should respond to this kind of assistance? And to
2: that point, which I think is 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 a question we're asking right now. Do you think that Senator Sanders should have come public with the information when he learned it?
3: No. So I, I actually don't see any reason for him to have done so. So first of all, I assume that the briefing um, was provided on a classified or a do not share we basis. We think that it was, yeah. Um, so I, that would be my, my assumption um, going into it. And second of all, the idea that it's the can- the candidate's uh, obligation to communicate information to the public about uh, foreign influence is, right, that it, one, it sets a really weird question of, well, do you keep updating and how much information can you tell? Her? That That's the job of the government to be communicating this information on an a political nonpartisan but that's not gonna basis. happen. right I mean look I, I agree with Ben that um, that I thought Sanders response um, you know rhetorically was relatively strong um, I, I do think we need to acknowledge that the Sanders campaign was really really bad actors in 2016 they actively capitalized on the DNC leaks in order to wield maximum damage against Hillary Clinton they did so in a period of time in which it was publicly known of the Russian the Russian involvement they had no concern or compunction about doing that in the, at the time. And so uh, I am a little bit skeptical this time around, and, and I would want to hear their campaign talk a little bit more about lessons learned. That said, as much as I'm skeptical of Bernie's campaign, um, the really bad actors here are not just the president, but also um, some of the other Democratic candidates, including Mike Bloomberg. Um, so Mike Bloomberg, whenever your story came out, his official campaign Twitter feed tweeted out, um, feel the burn in Russian, um, apparently a very poorly translated so and conjugated version. Um, Feel the hotness. So (laughs) (laughs) rude and stupid, rude and silly, but also I'm actually really corrosive. So we are supposed to be playing a team sport here. And the team sport here is minimize the impact of foreign interference in the U.S. election. Work together with pre-political commitments. Don't attempt to weaponize it against the people you're running against. And so what Bloomberg did was when Putin or Trump, by leaking this information, or having this briefing gave this narrative of, oh, well, Putin likes Bernie. Bloomberg ran with it. That actually is feeding into precisely this narrative of delegitimization that we should expect candidates not to be doing. Now, one thing I think everyone should sort of see, you know, there there are two stories that I think we should understand as related to one another. Shane, your story about uh, th- about all this information related to Bernie and the Trump campaign's um, response to it, um, and of course the sudden dismissal of McGuire and the, in- the installation of a political loyalist and a purge of uh, career officers and apolitical civil servants within the intelligence community, because when questions arise about Russian. And Interference about electoral legitimacy, including really serious ones. That's a when, not if. When those questions arise, who is going to be the credible, institutionally legitimate voice that we turn to? Who is going to be the person that, when they speak, both Democrats and Republicans can say, okay, we believe that you are accurately presenting the information?
0: It's Richard Grinnell. He can do that.
3: Right? We saw Trump's um, national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, saying, well, I haven't seen any evidence that Putin is attempting to help Trump this time around. Right? Information that... But he said
2: he had seen evidence that they were trying to help Bernie.
3: Exactly. So so we see engaging in the politicization of intelligence, people who we would hope to be um, rising above it to preserve their own legitimacy and credibility because they might really need it in the future, instead eroding it, playing those Games And the people who might actually serve that really critical, important function are being pushed out. And and now I I do think we have to start thinking about, well, if in November, the president of the United States casts a, a shadow of whether or not the electoral outcome is legitimate, who will be the voice that both Democrats and Republicans can turn to, to believe reliable information? Because Donald Trump and his administration is not it.
0: Yeah, I think that is a that is absolutely the important question and I would say too that the way this whole segment started is also a manifestation of how almost impossible it is to identify that objective reliable voice in this hyper politicized Uh, environment where everyone's acting according to their own short-term political interests. Because, you know, this briefing, this was a briefing to the House Intelligence Committee, right? It was Democrats and Republicans. It was the intelligence community coming up to give a briefing and the members with their own uh, biases peppering the briefers with questions, pushing them to say something that was helpful to their side. And then, apparently leaking it all, you know, including uh, talking back to the White House. Well, do you know what the briefer said to me? You know, and so members of Congress are as guilty as anyone else of exacerbating an environment in which even career intelligence officials really can't win for losing, trying to provide objective information and analysis on what they know and what they don't know.
1: So, to be fair, and I'm going to try to make this point without in any way asking Shane about the sourcing of his story. Because we would never do that. But you uh, can ask. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, I do think it is not necessarily a good working assumption that these leaks came from Congress. And, you know, the, as, as I understand this situation, this story broke because McGuire had been removed. And the press starts trying to figure out what happened to get McGuire removed. And in that context, the story of the briefing, that the briefing had really upset Trump, uh, comes out. That was the initial story. And then there's a subsequent New York Times story a few hours later that deals with the contents of the briefing. And, and how
0: and, did Trump find out about the briefing? From members of Congress who called right, and but, told him. But about that
1: is it. not a leak. Right. Telling the president about classified material is not a leak. The question is how it becomes public. Now, there are three possible answers to that question. One is, as you say, the members of the committee. The second is the people around McGuire. And the third, of course, is the people in the White House themselves trying to explain why the president was upset with McGuire. Here is the thing that, that is interesting. Both the Washington Post story and the New York Times story have intelligence, White House, and congressional reporters on the byline, thus suggesting any of those three possibilities or some combination of those three possibilities is possible. In the conservative world, the outrage about this is directed at the fact that it leaked. And it is it is being talked about as another example of deep state leaks to damage Donald Trump, uh, intelligence community leaks to to damage Donald Trump. In the non-conservative world, there seems to be an assumption that it's coming from somewhere else, including like most leaks from the White House itself. But I do think the question of how you analyze where those stories came from is an important one to assessing Like what the kind of meta story is here.
3: Right, and how did Bernie Sanders respond? He said Washington Post, good friends. So Bernie Sanders responds to this reporting by suggesting that the Washington Post is printing this in some kind of effort to actually harm him politically in the upcoming primary. So um, bad actors who have really, I don't want to say bad actors is is an overstatement, but uh, a lot of evidence that people have not learned the lessons of 2016
0: at all. Well said.
2: All right, let's talk about something that doesn't involve me.
0: Why? Because <laughs> yeah, that
2: was a
1: totally comfortable situation for <laughs> oh, you, wasn't it? Just, here, Just doing,
2: blink doing, twice if it's the White still. House.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, there is. Uh, it, it is hard to keep track of the cycles of crisis and misery that have uh, befallen people in Syria. <clears throat> but now we have a new situation uh, in Idlib. Um, where humanitarian disaster has been playing out, probably one of the worst so far in the war in Syria, which has lasted nearly a decade. Tammy, talk to us about what is happening as the Syrian regime tries to take this, I guess, fair to say, kind of final stronghold of opposition located in Idlib and the carnage that is ensuing. And I think fair to say, probably escaping a lot of attention in the United States.
0: Yeah, it is actually striking how little attention this issue has gotten given the scope of the human suffering, the scope of the violation of basic humanitarian law, and the possibility for major military confrontation between a NATO ally and Russia. And I'll come back to that little piece in a minute. But you know, one of the only bright spots to me of last night's crazy Democratic primary debate um, was that it included some questions from Twitter. And one question was about the the uh, horrific suffering in Idlib. And what would you do as president about this? Um, and I think but for Twitter, sending questions to that debate, this issue would never have been raised. Um, so that was that was for me a benefit. But What's going on? Idlib province has, for a number of years, been the last, as you said, the last opposition held territory in Syria. Opposition held, meaning not under the control of either the Syrian government with Russian help, the Kurds with American and allied help, or the Turks, who now have a security belt along the The Turkish-Syrian border. Idlib province has had about three million people in it. Remember that Syria, about half of Syria's population, so about 11 million people have been displaced from their homes. And uh, a number of those people moved into Idlib province from other major cities. The Assad regime has been on a concerted campaign. Uh, They're on the ground. The Russians are in the air. Uh, to take back Idlib province, which is the, you know, they want control over all the major population centers in Western Syria. And this is the last one they don't have. As a practical matter, Idlib's territory has been under the control of some pretty extreme Uh, Islamist groups, mainly Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which is a militia that broke away from al-Qaeda. There are also al-Qaeda-linked fighters in Idlib province. There are other little militias, both jihadis like uh, al-Qaeda and some Turkish-backed militias that control checkpoints and, and areas inside Idlib. But it is really important to remember that In addition to a couple tens of thousands of jihadis, there are three million civilians there. Half of them are kids. And most of them have fled from other places. They're already traumatized. They're already living in caves or in the basements of bombed out buildings. They've lost their homes. They've lost everything. Now these people are under daily onslaughts of bombing by the Russians and the Syrian regime. They are trying to move north to get away from the fighting. The Turks have kept the border closed, saying that they're not going to allow any more Syrian refugees into Turkey, and they're worried that the extremists might come with them. So these people are on the roads basically with nowhere to go in the middle of the winter that's the humanitarian disaster. So today we have a joint op-ed from, and I don't think I've ever seen this before, the foreign ministers of France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Belgium, the Netherlands, Estonia, Poland, Lithuania, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, and Ireland. A joint op-ed about the need for action to stop the fighting in Idlib and save lives. And obviously, it is very difficult to foresee how that could happen without getting the Syrian government to agree to hold back from taking this last piece of territory that it, that it covets so badly uh, so that it can say that it essentially has won the war. I think that this joint op-ed is evidence, though, of the fact that the European Union could not get consensus among all of the government's to issue a joint statement and engage in joint action. And that is a symbol of uh, the weakness and division in Europe on this issue. They are so worried about Syrian refugees that they can't take a strong political stand. And in the meantime, the United States simply doesn't care. Now, what might make us care? What might make us care is that the Turks are sitting on the border worried that Russian warplanes may start bombing in Turkey's little security zone or even Turkish territory. And they are threatening to shoot down Russian warplanes. They have asked the United States, because we're NATO allies, to defend them from this threat by giving them Patriot anti-missile batteries and other air defense. And there's a thick irony here, because we've been in a huge argument with the Turks for the last several years because Turkey bought Russian air defense, the S-400 system, and deployed them against our, our will. And so now that the Turks may be facing Russian warplanes, they want our air defense after all. This may be enough to give the transactional Trump administration an interest in interjecting itself into this crisis.
3: And are we hearing anything from Secretary Pompeo or the State Department, the U.S. military? I mean, obviously the, the humanitarian crisis is getting um a little bit of coverage, although the minimal coverage, and it's really quite shocking how little, considering the scope of, uh, of humanitarian suffering. But there appears to be a total absence of U.S. government position or policy, even the sort of meek statements that we've come accustomed—we've become accustomed to over the past several years. Right. Am I missing them? Are
0: they out there? So if you think about it, you know, Trump on Syria has been a total roller coaster, Okay, He came into office talking about escalating the war against ISIS, which in a certain way he did. But he also bombed the Syrian regime in retaliation for its use of chemical weapons against civilians. However, once he decided he wanted American troops to leave Syria, which they still haven't quite done... He basically wrote it off. And so what you've got from Pompeo in the last week or so as this situation has escalated are a couple of thin statements, you know, we're watching, this is terrible, stop. But there's no active uh, cabinet-level diplomacy or presidential diplomacy going on at this point to do anything about it. There is still uh, Jim Jeffrey, who is the U.S. special envoy on Syria you know, and a former ambassador to Turkey. He's going back and forth. And, you know, the Turks want us right now. They want the United States to come help defend them from potential Russian warplanes. But what can we get in return? And is there a way that the United States, even if it wanted to get engaged at this point, is there a way that the United States could actually get leverage over Russia and Syria to, to stop this assault? I'm not so sure.
2: And I mean, you obviously made the point that you know the European Union can't reach consensus on this either. I mean it, it just it, – it seems hopeless. And I mean I hate having these conversations where it feels like there's just nothing to be done. But I mean there is a hopelessness to this op-ed. I mean they, they seem to be pointing out like don't be looking to us for solutions because they even say at one point it's important to remember that only a politically negotiated end of the conflict can serve as a durable conclusion to the crisis. This is nearly a dozen countries signing on to this. Yeah, absolutely. There's no no indication of where that politically negotiated end is going to come from.
0: Right. Setting aside the possibility of uh, a political negotiation to end the Syrian war, which frankly, I I agree, is a pipe dream right now. But you could, using the Security Council, if the Russians would stop shielding the Syrians from the Security Council, you could use – the U.N. and other forms of international pressure to push for a pause in the fighting that would allow civilians to get out of the way so that the Syrians at least would be bombing empty buildings and bombing extremists instead of bombing little kids who are freezing.
1: All right. Let's try to move on to object lessons. It seems like an odd transition back to the cruise ship. Do you want <laughs> to? you I wouldn't want to be like? Uh, do you want to start with the cruise ship? All right, let's start with the cruise ship. But I... can I? Do I get a pass from like like whistling past a? Uh, of course. A, a Listen. Sometimes disaster?
2: transitions are just awkward. So okay. So or...
0: I, maybe this is just the awkward transitions edition, right?
2: Yeah, here. <laughs> at least this segment is. That's for sure. All right. <laughs> I have Cheerful
1: mine. cruise ship joke time. Okay. Who would you
2: not want to be stuck with on a cruise ship? Okay, All right.
0: Shane, you ready to go? Yes. Go.
2: Okay. Mine's not a public person, but he's also not anyone I cover, so I want to be clear about this. So, I had this Uber driver recently when I was visiting Richmond, who was a perfectly agreeable, jovial guy, and appeared to be like a self-styled amateur historian, and claimed he had a blog. I don't remember the last time somebody told, told me they had a blog. By the way. I have a so, blog, show. <laughs> you know, that's different. You still call it that. But this is guy being like, I have this blog. I'm like, oh, shit. Here we go. <laughs> um, who had, like, all of these really interesting historical anecdotes about buildings in Richmond and, you know, the history of it uh, going back, you know, 100, yeah. even 200 okay. years.
0: respect. I have respect for that obsession. Okay.
2: except, like, every story he would tell, and he told several of them in a short car ride, I'm listening to him going... I think probably seventy percent of this is probably generally factually true, and the other thirty percent is just bullshit. And it was very charming bullshit, and the stories were really interesting. But he wouldn't stop talking, and then he somehow segued onto asking me if I'd been to the Olive Garden and I had tried their soup and how good H- the soup is. Have you been the- to the Olive Garden? You I, know I, no they comment.
0: have endless breadsticks. Did you know
2: that? <laughs> I, I know a listener to this podcast who loves the Olive Garden, but I'm not taking it Joe right out now. for a date <laughs> oh, tonight.
3: <God. laughs> and
2: then it was like back onto the. Chart. Church and there's this stained glass window in the back of the church, and how it was put there. And I'm like, A, I don't believe 30% of what you're saying. B, you like the Olive Guard. And C, why won't you stop talking? And is I feel this is like, your
0: cruise ship guy? This is
2: my cruise ship nightmare. It's like this, he just would occupy all of the conversation. He would just be making shit up endlessly and would be just loving the buffet. I would, I would, I seriously, I'd jump. I would just jump.
1: Susan?
3: For the same reason as making shit up, uh, dominating the conversation endlessly, and loving the buffet, I feel like Donald Trump is the worst person you could possibly <laughs> too be in any you. room on. with at any given particular time. Um, I'm I'm not going to. I'll I'll make Trump my um, my <laughs> right. answer.
1: Tammy, we got okay, we, so we've got Uber driver enrichment. And Donald Trump. Okay,
0: so I'm going to bring these two together because I actually think that for this guy, he kind of is like that Uber driver who thinks he knows a lot, but at 30% of it is complete bullshit and he won't stop talking and – He's a huge supporter of Donald Trump. Is it one mail? No, come on, guys. Sebastian Gorka. Oh, <laughs> oh
2: God. That's what? a good one. Yeah,
0: Jacob's nodding. This would be oh. a cruise ship nightmare. And
2: he'd be talking about how he wasn't going to get coronavirus because of his fish pills.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and the suede vest for
3: protection. The
2: oh. oh. problem, tomorrow is you haven't been taking your fish pills.
0: <laughs> I can't. I can't.
1: All right. What so, well, mine.
0: I had I had three.
1: I had it down to three uh, contestants. The first, just because he annoys the shit out of me in every one of these debates, is Tom Steyer. Oh, I like and he'd be- have that tie on. Yeah, so. he'd have that. He'd tie. He'd wear it
0: every day. And just like
1: being stuck on a cruise ship in quarantine with Tom Steyer is like a vision of hell. Um, the second, for somewhat the same reason, is Jeff Sessions. Oh. I mean, just he's like, very
3: small, so he wouldn't take up too much space.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it would just be awful. Having a petite little omelette for breakfast, but the honestly, the winner is Jim Jordan. Oh, um, ah. because because the his presence would, in an ongoing way, put me into the kind of rage that I would have to take a lot of breaths to get out of, yeah. and um, and I would. Just want to scream at him all the time, and so yeah, uh, that's. I think he's the winner. I
2: also though think that Donald Trump, Seb Gorka, Jim Jordan, and my Uber driver would very much enjoy being on a cruise together. I Maybe we could pay put them, pay on for them on a raft, yeah. So they could just a sweet can they
3: send, send them? them to the sun. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> they, these are like four people who would actually, I think, get along quite well. I think there are some personality traits in common to all of these people. That's and we know good.
0: that if one of them got coronavirus, the others would take care of him.
2: Oh, sure. There would be nobody going overboard in that situation. Um, I also have an object lesson, but if you guys have – do you have one? Should I just do mine? You had yours Go for it. So I want to point out an uh, excellent article – Uh, In a publication called Standpoint, which is a British publication, by John Seifer. Listeners to the podcast may know John Seifer, former CIA officer with a lot of experience in Russia. Uh, He did this great list of all of the tropes that get used in spy fiction, mainly in spy films, that absolutely drive him nuts. And this is kind of like an interesting little pet passion of mine. Like, I am fine. He uses Jack Ryan as an example. And I know Tammy loves the Jack Ryan series.
3: What? Didn't you love the Jack Ryan series? I no. thought you did. No.
2: <laughs> I thought somebody here really liked Jack that is Ryan.
3: disinformation. Damn, I'm sorry. <laughs> Against Tammy. Well, we'll
2: leave that in. <laughs> My apologies. Um, I love the Jack Ryan movies. I tried the first episode of the show, whatever. Like, you know, Homeland, it's fine. It's not realistic. But like, I'm the thing. My thing is I don't so much care if the – tradecraft and the terminology is not realistic. To my mind, it's A, is the human drama compelling and consistent, and B, is the, is the story just basically not cheap. Okay, uh, but
0: John Cipher has pet peeves, is that what you're saying? John has
2: pet peeves, and he had this great line, too, where he said that placing the espionage genre inside the category of action films has been a disservice to quality writers who know how to tell a real story and ultimately a disservice Ooh. to the audience. And you know, he, And I'm sure he's probably a lover of, like, John and Graham Greene uh, and, and other uh, writers who have tended to focus more on the personal relationships and the psychology of the world of espionage, which is, uh, frankly, a lot more compelling, oftentimes, than shit just blowing up. But I'll I'll read a couple of his pet peeves here. uh, Accounting. We work for the taxpayers and are held accountable for all the things that we use and destroy. James Bond never seems to fill out his expense (laughs) form. Um, Basic security failures. The prime responsibility of any intelligence officer is to protect their sources. No one would engage in cell phone conversations with sources or from the field to headquarters. Anyone who has public meetings with clandestine sources or brings sensitive documents and pub- to public places or hotel rooms would have a very short career. <laughs> <laughs> um, blackmail. This was interesting. A staple tension builder in spy films, but it is drilled into us from day one that we just don't do it. Like torture, it's not only wrong, it doesn't work. Anyone strong-armed and cooperating looks for a means to get out of it we would not be successful if those people working for us despised us and were looking for revenge she has like 12 of these in here which i thought were just so interesting and it's, i'm just like i love the idea of you know intel people just being annoyed by this but he makes the great point that like there's a there's a better way to tell these stories sometimes
3: I also feel like, a, like just for recruiting purposes as well Whenever people tell me they want a career in intelligence I was going to be like how do you feel about paperwork <laughs> right. and reading and writing because m- like 95% of all of this is reading and writing and flying economy, and economy class. class not
0: on a private jet my friend. Do you love PowerPoint? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I I was talking to a person recently from retired from the agency who was counseling a young person on whether she wanted to have a career in intelligence. And he said, how do you feel about lots of travel, foreign language and lifelong problems with gastrointestinal issues?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Have I got the job for for you.
2: you? Oh, boy, oh, boy. And I've had a great job as host of this podcast. But this is all the time that we have. I inserted no spy tropes. No podcasting or journalism tropes into this episode. I want to be very clear.
0: We quarantined them all. Yeah. You are wearing a
3: fedora with the press card on That's it right true. now, though. So, That's true. so yeah. you know, yes. a little cliche.
2: And I just came from an assignation in a hotel with a source, <laughs> which is how I know all the things that I know.
3: And, I and your source out. was the White House?
2: <laughs> it's not a real source. I'm just going to put it in the paper. It's fine.
1: <laughs> All Shane's fake sources.
2: Yes, exactly. All of them. I,
1: they're, they're, they're made
2: up. I've given them all little names, too. <laughs> I have little Star Wars figures at homes, and each one stands in for dolls. Exactly. Oh, Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find overpriced um, masks. Uh, and rubber gloves. No, you can't because they are all no, sold you out. Can't. because <laughs> <It's> crazy. <laughs> people like me bought
3: them. How much did they charge? I don't want to tell you. I can't. I, I'm not ashamed to I don't to admit. want to tell you because I can't let my husband listen to this podcast and find out. Oh, God. Uh,
2: okay. I went on Amazon just thinking I might buy some masks the other day. They were $200 for a box. Oh, no, it wasn't oh, yeah. that crazy. Well, may have been, it's $199. The <laughs> bargain is twice the price. <laughs> uh, you can follow us on Twitter at R A T L security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps out those listening in quarantine to find the podcast.
1: And by the way, if you are in quarantine, uh, Rational Security, this episode is – dedicated to you oh yeah. yeah and if you got time it's on your sanitized. hands yeah, sanitized <laughs> go back go listen to the whole archive you cannot get coronavirus by listening to rational
2: True. security
0: That's right. we are
1: we
2: are zero coronavirus infections and counting. the
3: acting dhs secretary is pretty sure pretty sure, <laughs> yeah, from podcast. Pretty sure. got that locked 90 although he
2: was tweeting can't find this podcast anyone else having this problem <laughs> <laughs> Our audio engineers this week were Elliot Setzer and Jacob Schultz. The show is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders and their improbable new folk duo, Corona and Lime.
0: Oh, oh good. Oh, nice. Good.
2: I like that. Can't you just see it?
0: Yeah. I can. Sophia Yan in the but back
2: it... with a little captain's hat playing keyboard. But I think
1: it's Corona
2: and Lime. Corona. <laughs>
0: Corona. Corona. <laughs>
2: My corona.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. In that Brooklyn accent.
2: <laughs> oh my goodness. On behalf of my good friends, uh, Susan Hennessy, what are your names? Ben Witness and Jamara Coppin Witness. We are from the quarantine zone. We'll talk to you next week. Bye bye.